Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. We've been in a series entitled um, The Long Way Home. We've been following the children of Israel and their departure from Egypt, moving towards the promised land as God is developing them from slaves to warriors, from tribes to a nation, to people who really don't know God that much, um, to someone who truly does understand and know God. And today, I want to talk to you about becoming an awful Christian. And this is going to take you down a little bit of a rabbit hole at first. You're going to have to stay a little bit aware of where we're going to figure out where we eventually end up at. But as we go down this rabbit hole, if you stay engaged, I want to take you to a much larger space of understanding as we move along down this line. Um, Richard Halverson is a former chaplain in the United States Senate. And he observed one time this. He said, in the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a pervasive culture. And finally, he said, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. In other words, where it became a business. I've seen this increasingly within our country. Um, there's almost like two extremes we find in churches today. The one side is so detached from culture, so faithful to the core of the scripture that it, it can't engage any further or any way um, to the culture. More often, though, I, I find churches that have moved so deeply in trying to connect with the culture that they become a reflection of the culture. We have always, as a church, tried to operate in this third way. We've tried to operate in this place that holds true to the truth of Scripture while engaging the culture and not becoming a reflection of the culture. And that has been a very challenging uh, thing to do. Um, I want to applaud those of you that are here right now, that you're here in the room participating. I want to applaud those of you who are on live stream. And if you are on live stream, not because of fear, but because of a consideration for a family member or for a health issue of some type, then I applaud that too. But I also know it's very difficult for you to engage in this medium. And the danger that we have, and the reason why we did not engage in this methodology and technology pre-COVID was because of our philosophy and the belief that we must come together as a people to experience the presence of God. That there's something lost when we go through a digital format um, that makes it just one more channel that can be turned and feeds into a consumer mindset that we have. There's an extreme danger with that. So we've engaged in this because of the necessity of the moment. And it's important that we do. But there's a danger if that becomes our primary modality. 
There was a magazine and, and a website I saw a couple of years back that had a review on area churches. That was its purpose. It was just like the review that you'd read at a play or at a local restaurant, only it focused on the church service. Um, it rated the music, the sermon, the general feel of the church. The pastor got a particular rating of one kind or another. This is the mentality that a writer, Sky Jathani, writes about in a recent book that he wrote called, back in 2013 actually, that's a recent, called The Divine uh, um, Commodity. It was a takeoff off of an Italian work called The Divine Comedy that talked about spiritual things, but he's referencing it as the divine commodity, the idea that the church is increasingly something that's selling and losing its depth. Jathani argues that churches today have turned God into a commodity, that they are marketing experiences and producing consumers instead of worshipers. Jathani describes the thinking this way, quote, if our worship gatherings are energetic, stimulating, and exciting enough, then people will attend, receive what's being communicated, and be spiritually transformed. The justification for this approach is simple, he explains. People won't come to a church that's boring. And what qualifies as boring is defined by our consumer-slash-experience economy. And so the Disney world becomes the standard of comparison for Sunday school. And Conan O'Brien becomes our role model for preaching. In consumer Christianity, Jathani writes, the shepherd becomes a showman. Pastors become performers. Everything becomes a show, and there's no real sense of the presence of God in the process. If you are here today, then you are part of a congregation, not an audience. If you are by live stream because of necessity, not fear, and this is still your home church, then you are part of that congregation, albeit scattered and in a much more difficult format for you to engage. When I did my graduate studies at Wheaton College, I had an opportunity to do it by uh, extension, to not be on campus. I chose purposely the tougher ex uh, example and to be on campus. The reason why is because I knew already, even as a young man, the importance of being with other learners, of being able to see my professors in the context, to be able to ask questions directly and engage with those other learners. And that's what it means when we come together as a congregation, not as an audience. And so I commend those of you that are present and are engaging. And for those of you that are continuing the more difficult process of the live stream in this season of time for wisdom's sake and not for fear's sake, but as I look around, I, I'm reminded of something that I, I came across in Russian history years ago called the Potemkin Village. And the idea of the Potemkin Village was drawn from a story about Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, and how one time she wanted to review her empire. She had a former lover and a minister, uh, um, not pastoral, but one who was in the politics area, um, named Grigory Potemkin. And so she went on her boat trip down this particular river um, Grigori, knowing that the actual state of the empire was pretty shabby, instead gathered facades of buildings brightly painted and rounded up peasants and, and put them in bright clothes. And, and as she'd come down the river, these facades were in place and the peasants were outside dancing and singing songs and everyone was prosperous and beautiful and great. And she'd see that and think, how wonderful. And she'd go on by and after she'd pass, they'd quickly deconstruct the building. The, and buildings, they would round up and whip together the peasants, load them up and run on down to the next stop and construct the whole thing all over again. And so after, over and over again, she's seeing this appearance of prosperity, this appearance of joy and happiness when in fact it was empty. 
And this is the case, I think, oftentimes of the church that has become increasingly a Potemkin village with an appearance of influence, with the appearance of certain depth, but in fact, it's lacking and empty and a facade only. We have become in many ways awful Christians, awful in the sense of negative, dark, unappeasing and unpleasant. We've wrapped ourselves up in politics so much that in many churches it's become such a divisive thing. I thank God that has not been the case here thus far, but we still have a couple of weeks to go, and I'm hoping you can last that long. Personally, I'm kind of putting my, pinning my hopes on the asteroid that's supposed to hit the day before the election. But whether it's in our posts, whether it's in our personal conversations, something I read recently said, this I thought was brilliant. The blood of a donkey or an elephant cannot be mixed with the blood of the lamb. The kingdom has always had both political zealots and tax collectors all stumbling together to follow God. The blood of a donkey, if you understand the representation, or of an elephant of the political representation cannot be mixed with the blood of the lamb. There were tax collectors and zealots, two sides of the political spectrum. And I pray and believe that in this congregation we have um, raging Democrats and we have raging Republicans and raging Libertarians who no one pays attention to. <laughs> but that we lay that down when we come into the fellowship of believers. And that we recognize our overarching commitment is to be followers of Jesus Christ before anything to be done. That is supposed to be the calling of us as a church. Now, I told you this was going to be a little bit of a rabbit hole. I told you it was going to take us to a dark place, but eventually bring us into an open space. And so I hope you're still with me thus far as we move along here. Again, we want to remember, we were actually going to be discussing and taking a look at Israel's journey, so let's go back to that. When we left them last, Moses was getting a leadership lesson. They'd fought their first battle. Now it says, according to Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, exactly two months after the Israelites had left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. I've got a picture for you of Mount Sinai. This is a bitter moment. I was supposed to be there three months ago, and instead I was here in COVID. So I just took the picture by pulling it off the Internet. One of these days I'm going to get there. But this is the traditional spot where the children of Israel would have come. Pretty intense place. Pretty steep. Pretty craggy. They come to this place. It's the same place that, that, that Moses would have uh, encountered the burning bush, his first encounter of God, and the first knowledge of God as Yahweh, the God who needs no one but desires us. The God that needs nobody but he wants you and he wants me. And so now he's brought the entire children of Israel and they've gathered at this mountain and they're going to encounter God in a different expression and a different way. And so Exodus chapter 19 going on, verses 3 and 4, Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called him to the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce that the descendants of Israel, Jacob's name had been changed to Israel. Um, and so you've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I just wanted to see this one section at least because it talks about eagle's wings. Um, most birds, I understand, take their young and catch them in their claws and transfer them to wherever they're transferring to them. I don't know if they need to go to school and then back again or what the deal is. But, but they would transfer them that way. 
Eagles are different, I'm told. I'm told that in eagles' cases, the eaglets, the little birds, get on the back of the eagle and attach themselves. And so as the eagle is raising up, the mother eagle, then on the wings of that eagle, they're being carried. There's also the intimation that there's a hunter down below that fires an arrow or attempts to kill that eagle. It, to get to these little eaglets, it's got to go through the mother first. And so when uh, God is saying here in this moment, I carried you on eagles' wings, and this is referenced in the book of Isaiah, other chapters as well in Scripture. He's saying here, saying, I lifted you up. Not exactly like Frodo in, in Lord of the Rings deal, okay? But that I carried you. And in carrying you, you were protected. That anything that's going to get a hold of you has to go through me first. That to me is a very powerful imagery. He goes on then and, um, and, and talking in the fifth and sixth verse. Now, if you will obey me, God says, and keep my covenant, you'll be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you'll be my kingdom of priests. Listen to that. My kingdom of priests, my holy nation. That should echo something for you. My kingdom of priests, my holy echo, a holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So he's saying that, that as they're gathered there, I'm going to make something special of you. You guys are going to be priests. And what do priests do? They kind of connect heaven and earth. They're consecrated. They're holy. They're set aside for a purpose. He says, I'm going to make the whole nation of you that. 1 Peter chapter 2.9, we're told of us as Christians that are followers of Christ, that you're not like the world. You're not supposed to be like the culture that we are immersed in. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests. You are, in fact, a holy nation set aside for a purpose. You are God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness or out of the culture into his wonderful light. This is who you're to be. It's the echo of the same thing that Israel is experiencing at Sinai. I'm not going to ask how many of you are in sports situations very rarely, I don't recall ever a time because I was avid and effective in sports that I was, I was standing as, as one of the last ones to be, get, to be picked, unless it was a group that didn't know me. Usually I was one of the first ones picked, or sometimes I'd be the one picking. And I always felt bad for that last person left where you're, they're, they're there and both captains are kind of looking and saying, well, you want them, I'll let you, you take them. Okay, we'll take them. And it just felt terrible. Now, for some of you who had that experience, I've just lost you. You're just locked in that moment, okay, from the before. So I release you. What this is saying is that you were chosen first. You are an individual that was chosen by God first, who needs no one but wants you, and he chose you. It's not a random issue. You're chosen. You're to be someone who brings heaven to earth. You're to be holy and set aside. You're God's very own possession. That is an incredibly huge thing few more things quickly. In verses 10 through 12, the uh, Lord says to Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them. Um, be sure they're ready on the third day. A lot of interesting things. We don't have time to chase this down. Happen on the third day. Resurrection happens on the third day. Different things happen on the third day. In this case, three days they're supposed to prepare themselves. They're supposed to come to Sinai. In verse 12, 12, he says, Mark off a boundary all around the mountain and warn the people, be careful. Do not go up on the mountain or even touch its boundaries. Anyone touches the mountain will certainly be put to death. There was something of, of, 
of a holiness of something so set aside that God filled that space in such a way and was so alien that, that being casual about that would cause death. We see the same thing with the Ark of the Covenant. If we've learned anything from Indiana Jones, don't ever touch the Ark of the Covenant. You'll die. There's something powerful. There's something about the very presence of God that we cannot stand as humans or withstand. So the barriers put around, just make sure nobody wanders in. Oh, I want to see God. I want to check this out. I want to, well, we're kind of curious. We don't know what's going on. We're kind of foolish and silly, and we'll, we'll go into this. But here it goes. 16 through 19 says, On the morning of the third day, thunder roared. Lightning flashed. A dense cloud comes there. There's a long blast from the ram's horn. All the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Sinai is covered with smoke because the Lord's descended on it. Um, it goes on about the smoke from brick kiln. The whole mountain shook violently. And as the blast from the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. Now first, everyone's saying, well, we're kind of curious. I mean, who's God? What's, what's going on here? There's some boundaries to make sure we kind of stay back. But we're kind of curious. And, and then suddenly God shows up. And it is an earth-shattering moment. We read this, but I think it's hard for us to comprehend. I've only been in one earthquake. It was a Michigan earthquake, which means it was nothing. I was in my office, and I could feel the wolf shaking. Just like I thought a truck had hit the, 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 the side of the, of the church. But a California earthquake. Take that times 10. This is something shaking violently, a whole mountain. It's disturbing to them. If I'm going to jump ahead to Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, when the people heard the thunder and loud blasts of the horn, they saw the flashes of light and the smoke billowing. They stood at a distance, trembling with fear, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us directly or we will die. So first, like, we're kind of curious. It's like, hey, let's check it out. It's kind of like, you know, we've got these gods that are idols and everything else, so let's check this one out. Then God shows up, and now they're stepping back. They don't even want to approach. says, you talk to them. We'll stay back here. We're going to hang back. Now, we're not going to go into this today, but, but the Ten Commandments are given. In Jewish, in Hebrew, they're referred to as the Ten Words. The Ten Words. And the very first one that comes down in this moment, you can put it as Exclusivity exclusivity in Exodus chapter 20 verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. No other gods but me. He's dictating exclusivity. The Jews had been soaked in Egypt where there would have been 20 or 30 gods. The Romans, when they conquered a land, added one to their pantheon of gods. The Greeks did that. Everyone did that. But now this God is saying, no, there are no other gods. It's exclusive. There's going to be a relationship that's going to be between just you and me. That's it. There's this power. There's this experience that they've suddenly had. And I, I want to try to wrap your brain around this for a moment, and I'm going to get very geeky on you for a moment. So are you ready to be geeked for just a moment? Okay, we're just going to be a little geeky. There's this television show called Doctor Who. It's a sci-fi thing. And in this thing, this, this guy travels different time and space in this um, spaceship type thing that looks like a police call box from London from the 50s or so. 
So it's about this big and this higher so. But because it's special, it's got interdimensional aspects to it. So as you open the door and step in, it's a running joke through the entire series because everyone says the same thing. They walk in and they see this huge control room. And the reality is it goes on for miles in different directions and different caverns and pools and gardens and libraries and everything else. It's multidimensional. It invades all sorts of different dimensions. It's all wrapped up, but you step outside and it's just this little box. And so people always go around, they look at it, and they're, they're, then they step in and they, and they say the same thing, it's bigger on the inside. And it's a running joke, they'll say it's bigger, and we say, yeah, we know it's on the inside, it's bigger. And then the box itself, the spaceship itself, is actually a living entity and a being. And in the same way, we, we, we look at God and we see him in the person of Jesus Christ come to earth, touchable. We can encompass that. And then we get casual about that and we get familiar with that and we think it's like this police uh, um, call box that we can lift up and, and move and we can grasp and understand. But if you really step into the things of God, if you really step into Christ, you realize that he is vast. You realize that God operates on so many different dimensions. And in fact, once you step into God made flesh so that we can touch and hold and we can have him as our friend and our lover and our redeemer and all these other things, but we forget sometimes, unless we really step into him, that he's also the God of Sinai. He's also this vast, powerful, all-encompassing, alien being. The Jews were experiencing this at Sinai. They had not experienced Christ. They experienced the full dimensionality of it and they're blown away. We're told in, in um, uh, Hebrews chapter 18 through 22, they go back to this moment and says, you've not come to a physical mountain, all those of us are followers of Christ, not Sinai, to a place flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I am terrified and trembling. No, you've not come to that mountain, dear friends. You've come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. In other words, God expressed himself to the children of Israel in this powerful, all-encompassing, terrifying method. But we have experienced God as Jesus Christ, our friend, our sacrifice, the lover of our soul. We are taken to a different mountain, that of Zion, that of the city of God. Not the desert experience, but this living experience. Not to exclusion, but to invitation. Not to a place where we have to lie in our guilt and be terrified, but where we're healed and we're restored. As a result of engaging God in that way and on that level, our viewpoint changes. And we end up too oftentimes viewing God in a way that is less than complete. Our songs sing of him as our lover and best friend. We look at him as somebody that we can get our arms around this Jesus. He, we can walk with him. He's my co-pilot. He's all these other things. But if just for a moment we were actually to step inside, two men go up to the temple 
One's a Pharisee, the one who should have known the things of God. And he, he stands so arrogant and so sure of himself. The tax collector goes up and he's so broken. He, he just beats his chest and, and asks for forgiveness and he's the one that goes out justified. We've made something of Christ that is easily manageable. Hebrews chapter 12. As we begin to bring this to a point here in this wider space, I want you to understand. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, the writer in Hebrews says, but now he makes another promise. Once again, I'll shake not only the heaven, earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only the unshakable things will remain. Are you invested in culture that surrounds you? Are you invested in the unshakable things? Because eventually all of this, and we're seeing it now in our culture, is going to shake apart and come down. But there's this unshakable thing. Only unshakable things will remain since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear. And I want you to look at this right now. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and what? Okay, I want you to really grasp this word. This is important right now, okay? Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. And for those of you that can't hear real loudly at home, the word awe would just scream from the top of everyone's lungs, sort of. Awe. A feeling of awe. Awe is a feeling of both wonder and overwhelming fear. The kind of feeling that you would experience one morning if you opened up your bedroom window to face suddenly an actual, real, genuine dragon. And you would say, my God, this wonderful creature actually exists. And I might die in the next minute. You have that combination of wonder and fear and reverence that is all wrapped up into that word awe. Words have meaning. Some words change over time. Some are new words. There's a new word I learned the other day called adorkable. This is someone who's a real dork, but they're very adorable at the same time. They're adorkable. Another word that I heard the other day was recombobulate. Recombobulate is when you go through security, you strip yourself of everything at the airport, and then the other side, you recombobulate yourself as you put everything back on. Another word I heard recently was um, multi-slacking. Multi-slacking is when you have your computer and you have multiple screens up on the computer, but they're really not related to anything. It makes it look like you're very busy when, in fact, you're not. You're multi-slacking. <laughs> words are great. Sometimes we lose the meaning of words, though, when we don't understand things the way we should. The word naughty. long time ago, if you were naughty, you had not or nothing. You had naught or nothing. Later it came to mean evil or immoral, and now it just means that you're behaving badly and not on Santa's list. But the word has changed. Another word that has changed over time has been this word that you just pronounced, the word awe. Awful things used to be worthy of awe for a variety of reasons. So when we said something was awful, 
we meant that we were full of awe and reverence and respect and maybe a little bit of fear. A study was done not too long ago by Psychology Today in 2016 um, about different things in regards to awe and wonder. They collected things from around the country. University of Pennsylvania researchers defined awe as the emotion of self-transcendence, a feeling of admiration and elevation in the face of something greater than the self. A popular theoretical physicist wrote, awe gives you an existential shock. You realize that you are hardwired to be a little selfish, but you're also dependent on something bigger than yourself. Being enraptured is a way to, quote, remove the tyranny of the ego. A therapist, Robert Leahy, says awe is the opposite of rumination. It clears away inner turmoil with a wave of outer immensity. Social scientists have found that when people experience a sense of awe, they feel more empathetic, more connected with others. One of the scientists concluded that wonder pulls us together, a counterforce to all that seems to be tearing us apart. If our country truly had a sense of who God was in the person of Jesus Christ and realized it's not just something that they can encompass and move around where they will, but they would step in and realize the multidimensional, the vastness, the, the terror, the wonder, the awe of God, we would realize how small we are and it would draw us together. The Wharton Bull School of Business evaluated the New York Times' most emailed articles and found that the ones that evoked awe were the ones that were most shared. The ones that were most shared. We see today in our society how often we're really, truly awful Christians. We bicker and we fight. We're weak in our disciplines. We're caught to entertainment rather than to the depths of the cross and the sacrifice that is meant there. We'll fight and scrabble over the smallest things and we become hateful in other people's eyes and we are truly awful Christians. But what? What if for a moment, what if for a moment instead of thinking that Christ is our big cheerleader and buddy and pal that somewhere we would get a glimpse of what the children of Israel had in that moment at Sinai that if we could step inside if we could experience the vastness the terror the power, the glory the holiness what if we stopped becoming awful Christians and we became awe-filled Christians. That we would share that as a people and that it would cut across all our political lines because in the face of that awe, that alienness, that, that, that otherness that doesn't need anyone but desires us, that it would bring us to our knees and draw us together as a people again. The world has seen enough of awful Christians but it has not begun to even glimpse a snapshot of awe-filled Christians who gather and worship and are overwhelmed by the presence of God that seek experience from Him and not just intellectual understanding or entertainment from showmen and performers. That type of Christianity. That could overcome Greece and Rome and Europe. 
the American culture. It's already having vast inroads on the Chinese culture. That can transform a world. What is your view of God? Are you becoming an awe-filled Christian? Recently, scientists discovered what is believed to be the brightest star, the brightest sun in the universe. It's not uh, ten times brighter than our sun. It's not a hundred times or even a thousand times or ten thousand times or even one million times. It is ten million times brighter than our sun. They said if you had a a, a, a welder's uh, face guard on, you still could not look at the sun. You could not, you'd be overcome by the brightness 10 million times brighter than our own sun. As the first song was sung, it expressed his majesty, but also his love and his grace for us. And and we respond to that, and we should. But as the second song was being sung, and I was surprised because it happened to me in first, I didn't think it would be in second, because I experienced it already once, but the hairs on my arms began to go up and a chill hit there. There's something about the awesomeness of God, and suddenly your arms were raised and lifted, many of you. And I'm going to just take a second, since you're here and you're stuck, all of you, just wherever you're at, just we're all going to do it together. Just raise your hands up. Everyone just do it for me. You never did it before. This is great. Next time you're in worship and praise, just try lifting up and saying, God, you are so awesome. You are so awesome. You can take it down because I don't want to push you any further, okay? But it's great to see you all in that way. God is our lover. He is our friend. He is the healer of our lives and our soul. And, 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 and he's, he's this like this. But as we step inside, he's so much bigger on the inside. Don't lose track of the awesomeness of God. Realize that if he can make a star that's 10 million times brighter than our sun, how much more brilliant is he. Realize that. Take hold of that. Sometime this week, even if you're just quiet and nobody can watch you, nobody's watching, nobody's seeing you, so you could raise your hands up and nobody will think you're a freak. And you can do it here all the time. And nobody's going to think anything weird of it. I pray those of you at home are able to capture some essence of this. And if you're staying home by wisdom, then God bless you and keep you safe. If it's by fear, break out break out. Father, we come before you as your church, as a congregation, not as an audience of people who have been drawn to the the power of both the mountain that shook at Sinai and also the, the one of joy and grace at Zion. We see you as our lover, as our friend, as the healer of our souls, but we also see you as the God who creates a sun 10 million times brighter than we could even imagine. You are and we are becoming increasingly awe-filled Christians in pursuit of our God. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. And the church for once loudly, clearly could just say amen. 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 God bless you.